0: We could burn to the ground It's out of our control now I could see this going down For the last five years you were my queen you tried to put
1: the fire out with gasoline. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Smoke and Fire, a song by Chillicothe native Corey Breath, a folk pop artist currently based in Tip City, Ohio. Corey is our featured musical artist today, so stick around to the end of the podcast I'll tell you a little bit more about Corey how to find his music, and live performances, and we'll play the whole song for you. We've also added Smoke and Fire to our special playlist on Spotify. Just go to a free Spotify music app and search for Ohio Mysteries Featured Artists. That's Ohio Mysteries Featured Artists, and you'll get a jukebox of talented Ohio singer-songwriters we've been featuring on our program. For now, throw another log on the fire and settle in. We've got a long-forgotten but shocking story to share. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me as always is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years writing these types of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: So how long forgotten, Paula?
2: Well, this is an old one, Steve. We're going back almost 150 years. And yet, the name of our victim is going to be very familiar with folks who know Cleveland because it's the man who the Collinwood neighborhood was named for. His name was Charles Collins, and he was a railroad engineer who was a key player in bringing rail service to
1: northern Ohio.
2: Are you familiar with the Cleveland neighborhood of Collinwood? Yeah, yeah I've,
1: I've heard some stories, you know. I think it was kind of popular back in the day.
2: Well, it's made national headlines over the years. It's probably most famous for the horrific Collinwood School Fire in 1908 that killed 172 children, two teachers, and a rescuer. In modern times, it's more known for its renaissance. It's turned into this Center for the Arts, and that's a, a makeover that's really gotten some national attention. But our episode today isn't about Collinwood. It's about the neighborhood's namesake, a man thought to have committed suicide for more than a century, but who now appears to have been a whistleblower and the victim of cold and calculated murder. So our story starts in 1865. For a frame of reference, that's the year the Civil War ended.
1: Oh, okay.
2: And Charles Collins is chief engineer of the Lakeshore and michigan Southern Railroad. And he's very much admired. He's got 33 years of experience, a career that took him from Boston to Cleveland, and had some of his colleagues calling him the best construction engineer in the country. He landed in Ohio in 1849, and he had spent the previous few years laying road for the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railroad. Now, in that role, he's told to design a new bridge for Ashtabula, But right away, he has misgivings about the concept that's being foisted on him. The company's president, Amasa Stone, wants to take an existing bridge that spans 165 feet over the Ashtabula River and replace the wooden elements with wrought iron. Now, Collins is experienced at masonry construction. He only believes in masonry construction. And he's bothered enough about the direction of this planning and this somewhat experimental bridge, that he almost resigns from the company. Instead, he simply hands the project off to Stone, since he's the one insisting on it. Now, Amasa Stone, he was a well-established rail bridge builder from New England, and he had helped pioneer this new iron design known as a Howe Truss Bridge. Now, Amasa's efforts in Ashtabula are really going to benefit his family. You see, the Howe Trust Bridge was developed and patented by his brother-in-law, William Howe. And the new iron trusses are going to be made by his brother Andros's company, the Cleveland Rolling Mill.
1: Oh, so he's got a stake in this. Oh,
2: yeah, big time. I mean, it's a real family affair. Now no one denies that the bridge that they are planning to build is experimental who wants oh yeah, that's what I want to be on an experimental trestle, right, but they are not letting anything stand in their way, not even employees who object as a matter of fact, when Joseph Tomlinson, a civil engineer working for the railroad, insisted that the wrought iron that they were planning for would not handle the load, they simply fired and replaced him
1: oh that's that's an easy way to get around that
2: yeah. Well, Charles Collins doesn't resign, but he did pass this job off. Even without his approval as chief engineer, that bridge is going to get built. And while Collins had nothing to do with its design, he is in charge of inspecting the finished product. So when it's done, he puts the weight of three locomotives on it, and when it doesn't fall, he gives it a pass. Now, In about this time frame, he's been complaining to colleagues of really being overworked. One of them quoted him as saying, if they don't give me help, I'll go crazy.
1: Hmm.
2: One can only wonder if this contributed to his willingness to go along with the company president. So the bridge opens in 1865, and it's relatively free of incident for 11 years. But inside that wrought iron frame, tiny flaws are rocking back and forth, freezing and thawing, and slowly growing into a disaster. It happens on December 29, 1876. A train dubbed the Pacific Express left New York a couple of days before, traveling its regular westbound route toward Chicago. By the time it reached Erie, Pennsylvania, that's not far from the Ohio border, It carried 159 passengers and crew. There was also a full-on blizzard, but the train had two locomotives to push its way through the mounting snow. At 7.28 p.m., the train pulled its 11 rail cars onto the bridge over the Ashtabula River. Well, you can see what's coming. Yeah,
1: because ice is heavy. We know that.
2: Yeah. And the sad thing is this train depot, it is... Just on the other side of this bridge Families are there Waiting to pick up their loved ones From their journey in time to go to New Year's celebrations So they're about to
1: have front row seats to this They're so. going to
2: have front row seats to oh, this boy.
1: Just as the
2: front of the train Reaches the end of the bridge There's a loud crack The bridge's iron center span Gives way And the cars plunge 76 feet Onto the frozen riverbed below oh.
1: Now
2: Now the fall was bad enough, but making things so much worse, damaged kerosene heating stoves that were in the passenger cars ignited the wreckage of the rail cars because they were largely largely made of wood, right. and it created an inferno. There had been another fiery train wreck years earlier where railroad people had learned this lesson, and railroads were supposed to install self-extinguishing stoves in their passenger cars. But the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railroad decided to save the money, and they ignored the order. It was a gruesome carnage. Here's how a correspondent for the Chicago Tribune reported it. The disaster was dramatically complete. No element of horror was wanting. First, the crash of the bridge, the agonizing moments of suspense as the seven laden cars plunged down their fearful leap to the icy riverbed. Then the fires which came to devour all that had been left alive by the crash. Then the water which gurgled up from under the broken ice and offered another form of death. And finally, the biting blast filled with snow which froze and benumbed those who had escaped the water and fire.
1: Man, you're talking about three to, you know, four different things here. You're talking about, um, you know, maybe even a steam burn, you know, people today. Oh, yeah.
2: And- it was amazing that anybody survived this. I, you know, newspapers were known for their flowery imagery back then, but I read a lot about this accident, and it appears this account was spot-on oh. accurate. Now, word of the accident reached... Charles Collins quickly and he rushed to the site it was reported that he wept openly when he saw the burning rubble he waded through waist-deep frigid creek water looking for survivors himself and you know it was not an especially good thing to be a survivor either there was no hospital in the city area hotels and private residences were pressed into service It was like a war scene. There were 10 medical professionals who worked through the night trying to save who they could, performing many amputations. So the morning light revealed the extent of the horror. The train, the bridge, the metal, everything was one indistinguishable mess. Volunteers crawled through the wreckage, collecting baskets full of shoes whose owners had been burned up in the inferno. Apparently a lot of shoes survived for some reason, and they... Presumably, we collecting them, hoping to identify mm-hmm. you know, who had been lost. In the end, 92 people were killed at their best guess. Many of them burned beyond recognition. As a matter of fact, many of them would be committed to a mass grave. It was the country's worst rail disaster to date. you got to remember, this rail was still pretty young in the country. Mm. This was the worst they had ever seen. And it would remain so for the next 42 years. Now, over the next week or so, news stories shared accounts of eyewitnesses, survivors, first responders, and those families at the depot that were waiting for that train. They talked about a woman, her feet trapped in the wreckage, crying out for someone to cut her feet off and free her. But the fire to her was so close, rescuers couldn't reach her before the flames did. There was a father who had escaped a car where his wife and daughter were trapped. And the daughter was reaching out to him, shouting, Papa, take me with you. Oh. And when he realized he couldn't rescue them, he jumped back and joined them in the flames.
1: Yeah, that's, I could understand that. Yeah. That's horrible. In some ways, it would
2: be worse to live with the memory of that the rest of your life. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't want, yeah,
2: that's. And then a, a rescuer had shared another story of a child of about three or four years old whose clothing was caught on a board. Hanging above flames. And the child was screaming for its mother, who was trying to reach her. But the flames licked up and just consumed the toddler. Uh, this, is, they could get to her. this is hell. It was it was horrible. And you got to wonder if those stories played in Colin's mind over and over. For three weeks, friends said he would just break down from time to time and sob. A director of the railroad, uh, George Eli, he told a reporter... Collins thought more of his honor than of his life. He was a very nervous temperament, and the worry and anxiety connected with the Ashtabula accident worried him terribly. But the railroad knew it wasn't his design. After the accident, Collins turned in a letter of resignation. The board handed it back to him. They were not blaming him. But the Ohio Legislative Committee knew someone was to blame, and they came to town looking for answers. Collins gave his testimony and he signed a document handing over all his information to them. His testimony included that Amasa Stone was the one who had been responsible for the design and construction of the bridge. That was January 17, 1877. That was three weeks after the accident. It was a Wednesday. That same day, Collins agreed to join a team of inspectors from the Toledo division who wanted help looking over their own bridges. Not surprisingly, this is a good time to go make sure something else isn't going on out there. So they made plans for a field trip the following day. At 9 o'clock that evening, Collins left his office on Water Street in Cleveland and headed home. Now Thursday came, but Collins was a no-show for the Toledo inspection trip. His wife had gone to Ashtabula to spend time with her parents, so some wondered if he had changed his mind and gone with her. It would be so unlike him to leave without word. But, you know, maybe some communication had fallen through the cracks. You yeah. know, the communication was a slow thing back then. So they kind of blew it off. But, you know, Collins, he didn't show up to work the next day, on Friday. By Saturday, coworkers are getting concerned. So a railroad employee drives over to Collins' house, where he lived at the corner of West 3rd and St. Clair. That's just one block from today's Cleveland Public Square. He let himself into the house, searched from room to room, and he found Collins. He was laying on his bed, his head resting on a pillow in a pool of blood. Collins was stretched out completely straight on the bed, tucked under bed covers that were smooth and undisturbed. A revolver was in his left hand, which rested on his left thigh. There was also a full-loaded double-barrel pistol and an unopened razor laying on the bed to the right of the body. Investigators would soon learn that Collins and his wife had each taken to sleeping with a gun, a loaded gun. His tucked under the mattress, hers nestled under her pillow, which of course begs the question, Why is this couple feeling the need to sleep with two loaded guns? Definitely
1: scared of something.
2: Absolutely. Well, the guy who found the body backed out of the room and called the coroner, Frederick Fleedner. Now, Fleedner decided Collins died two days earlier, on January 18. That would have been in the hours after agreeing to go on the Toledo inspection trip, hours after giving that testimony to the legislative committee, and hours after leaving work and heading home. Fleener said he'd killed himself by putting the muzzle of the Navy revolver in his mouth and pulling the trigger. The bedroom was otherwise undisturbed. Collins appeared to have retired, undressed, placed his clothes over a chair near the bed neatly. His necktie was in its place on a stand. His valuables were all still in the room, his diamond pin, the studs on his shirt, his money, his watch nearby. But if he killed himself, The idea must have come on suddenly. He had clearly been planning to go on that Toledo trip. His travel bag was packed and rested right next to a new pair of work boots. There were some other things that were odd, too. Those bed linens that were neatly pulled up to just above Colin's waist, they looked as if he hadn't even flinched. The coroner explained it by saying death was instantaneous and the body would have had no movement whatsoever. The coroner also gave no explanation as to how the gun would have been able to fall forward to rest on his thigh if he was lying straight on his back when he shot himself. There was another fact that the Corps just completely dismissed. The gun was in Collins' left hand. The engineer was right-handed. Well, on the day of Charles Collins' funeral, his casket was surrounded by roses, jasmine, and calla lilies, only close friends and family and co-workers were permitted to attend. Paul Bearers conveyed his casket to a hearse, which slowly made its way through Cleveland to Union Depot, where a special train carried him and cars filled with mourners to Ashtabula. He was interred in a mausoleum at the Chestnut Grove Cemetery, not far, by the way, from a memorial obelisk that marks the graves of 19 unidentified victims of that train accident. Mm. And this was kind of interesting. I found an online blogger who said he counted the steps from Colin's grave to that memorial, and it was about 165 feet, which was the same distance as the iron span that failed on the Ashtabula Bridge.
3: Hmm.
2: Now, Isaac Brewer, he's the guy, by the way, who found Colin's body. Isaac never believed it was suicide and said so and George Converse, he was the chairman of the state legislative committee that investigated the accident, he came out publicly and said he thought Collins had been murdered, possibly to stop him from testifying further before the committee. For most people, however, the story ended there with Collins' interment. Officially, he'd committed suicide, and a couple of suspicions weren't enough to change that notion. What the public didn't know for the next 100 years, was that Collins didn't stay interred. One year after his death, his body was exhumed. His skull was sent to Dr. Stephen Smith, a New York surgeon who had been asked to examine it. On June 3, 1878, Dr. Smith gave his report. The bullet didn't enter Collins' mouth. He had been shot in the back of the head at close range. He said Collins couldn't have shot himself with his left hand, and even if he had, his hand would have fallen to the side and off the bed, not down forward to his thigh. The gun would have fallen from his fingers and skidded along the floor.
1: Oh, this absurd stuff. This is something like you would think you would hear nowadays.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, forensic science was, you know, it was. I've read some books on forensic science back Uh in the late 19th century, and and they had, you know, they weren't bumbling idiots, which surprises me that the Cleveland Corner, I should say the Cuyahoga County Corner, didn't get a lot of this figured out. I mean, I I don't think it was rocket
1: science. You know, the the only reason why it surprises me is I'm going to bring up another serial killer, Jack the Ripper. They would hose down the crime scene before even finishing their investigation because they didn't want, you know, the morning traffic to see it. And, but again, that's a different country. Well, Dr. Smith had even more
2: to say about this. He, he said, there is also no way the body would have remained straight and the bed linens would have been in this pristine condition. He said the body would have at least suffered some spasms.
1: I was going to say that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there was every indication that the gun wound to his head did not kill him immediately. And he said, and here's a quote, my opinion is that Mr. Collins came to his death by a shot wound inflicted by other hands than his own. Hmm. Now, Dr. Frank Hasting Hamilton, he worked at the same medical college as Dr. Smith. He did his own investigation of the skull, and he came to the same conclusion. He said he believed Collins was shot to death while lying asleep in his bed, and that his left arm and revolver were arranged after his death. Now, remember, I told you nobody knew of this publicly for a century. It only came to light that these autopsies over in, in New York were conducted in 1975, hmm. just by chance. There was a guy in Geauga County by the name of William Terrell, and he had a box full of documents that his mother had purchased at an auction back in the early 1900s. These reports from these doctors were in this box. And when he donated the box to the Ashtabula Historical Genealogical Society, that's when their significance was discovered. Mm -hmm. So just a couple of notes to tie things up. Amasa Stone, that railroad president, seven years after Collins' death, he committed suicide in his Euclid Avenue. Home. I
1: was going to ask if that how much it affected him. Maybe it affected yeah. him. Yeah,
2: I I think clearly it did. I mean, if not, you're a sociopath. You know. So. Yeah. And as for that bridge, uh, the American Society of Engineers they would conclude that there were many flaws in the design and the composition of the bridge, including a fatigue fracture. That started as a small air hole in that iron Mm. that grew over the years and caused the failure. So let's kick this over to our armchair detective and see if we can get a second opinion on some of this. Well, with us tonight uh, playing the role of armchair detective is Randy Forrest from Barberton. Hi, Randy. Hi. Thanks for being here. Randy is a retired employee of the Barberton Public School System, where he was also a coach for many years, and coached at the neighboring Norton Public Schools.
3: Yes. Awesome. Since 1980.
2: Wow. And still a very big uh, sports lover. As a matter yes. of fact, we have to uh, get this uh, armchair detective portion in pretty quickly, because you've got a ball game to get to. <laughs> so, all right, well, listen, Randy, let's just cut to the chase, and let's talk about what you think might have happened. Do you, are you comfortable with the idea that this was suicide, which seems to be what the history books have closed on, or do you suspect murder? Uh,
3: the suicide, to me, would be the furthest thing to expect to rule on because, like we were talking, he neatly placed his left, arm on, left hand on his thigh and still had the gun in his hand. He's right-handed, and he puts the gun behind his head. Well, actually, they said, the coroner said that they put in his mouth. And even if he had put it in his mouth, which they proved later he didn't, that uh, there's no way he can put that hand that neatly down on his thigh and his bed unruffled with him in it.
2: And why be packed for that field trip the next day if you had already decided you were going to kill yourself?
3: I, Yeah, or exactly, exactly. Why... Why would you do that? And uh, Now, we'll talk about the other. So you I, and
2: I are of one mind. I, I think okay. we both pretty, felt pretty strongly this was murder. So let's talk about potential suspects. Who did it?
3: For some reason, I don't think it's Stone. It's a mass of stone. Okay. M- mainly because if he was going to retaliate and keep Collins from testifying, it was too late. He had already sent in his stuff to do it. Right, and had already spoken to the committee the day before he was killed. Right, exactly. So they had to know that. I mean, Stone's group had to know that it was already done. And after, after doing a little bit of research on Stone, I'm not too sure he was that bad a guy. I mean, he donated money to colleges and stuff like that. Now, it looks it sounds a little shaky with um, with his brother in law helping him out with uh, building it, but uh, I'm not sure it was him. I do have questions that it seemed awful convenient that the wife was out of town at that time. Oh, the wife? Yes.
2: She was in Ashtabula.
3: Yes, she was in Ashtabula, mm-hmm. and he was home. And but even her is kind of shaky because you got to wonder. They both slept with guns under their bed, under their pillows, and under their mattress. Right. Something made him do that. What would it take to make you sleep with a loaded gun under your mattress? I couldn't do it.
2: Tell me what you think about the coroner. I mean, I know this is the 1870s. I mean, should we not have expected more skill from a coroner?
3: I'm a lover of westerns. I watch old westerns all the time, and and I can't remember ever watching a western where they mentioned a coroner. And I've probably seen a thousand Westerns and everything, so I'm not pretty sure that it's probably not an exact science back then. If, I mean, it might have been just like uh, Festus from Smoke or something like that, that, that somebody else who did the, did the job because nobody else could do it. And plus, if there were other shaky dealings going on, it could have been easily paid for. What, what I can't understand, too, is the police glossing over it. Right. Glossing over the whole thing.
2: Yeah, you'd think uh, even with a coroner involved, there would have been more of an investigation. Maybe forensics was just so primitive back then. Exactly. People were not picking up on the obvious. Or railroads were big money and big business. Yes. And could there have been some organized crime attached to this whole scenario in some way that we don't know and organized crime often had connections in the police
3: force. Which could explain the guns under the pillow and the mattress, too.
2: And why this case wasn't pursued any yes. more than, huh, yes. it looks like he killed himself. A coroner
3: could have easily been swayed. And like you said, the police could have been swayed. But I thought it was interesting that uh, they found the papers on that in 1975. Right. And uh,
2: I am unclear. I mean, I don't know. Who ordered that autopsy from the guy in New York? He worked at a medical school. So this is a guy whose whole life was about studying skeletons. I think he probably was way more skilled than a 19th century coroner. he was backed
3: up. He was backed up by one of his friends or one of the doctors who worked with him. Yeah, they
2: both independently came to the same conclusion. And, yeah. Should they reopen this case just to at least clarify the record, because right now the history books say Charles Collins committed suicide. Is that fair to him? If he was murdered, should they reopen it, see whether it needs to be reclassified? I'm sure they have no hope of solving this, but at least get that mark off Charles Collins' reputation.
3: Yeah, I don't think anybody looking into what you and I saw could say it was suicide. I mean, how could you read what... what, we saw that make it a suicide, so that's just a black mark on his family.
2: So is there a value into revisiting that officially and changing the Well, you the have record?
3: to ask well, how many relatives he's got around now who would really care about it. I, You know, what was that, 1865 or 66? It was 150 years ago. Yeah.
2: But he does have a neighborhood named for him. Yes. He was known well enough and contributed so much to the growth of Cleveland by getting rail through this area. I mean, he was a key player there.
3: He is a historical figure.
2: I don't know, I, I think maybe there's something to be said what? about reopening this, at least to get the record
3: I, th- I think it was kind of interesting, too. I, li- I did a little bit more research. And uh, people in Ashtabula, know where all those unknown Mark Graves are, you know, they don't know. They put people in graves in Ashtabula and didn't know who they were. They couldn't identify everything. Right. But people in Ashtabula have gone to that cemetery and, and claimed they saw Colin there. Uh, His ghost? The, yeah, the ghost of him. I thought wow. that was pretty interesting. Well,
2: Randy, thank you very much for your insight. It was yeah. fun to, uh, talking this over with you. I don't think we've solved the case, but you know what? Maybe we've shed a little more light on it, and maybe if maybe they don't so. officially collect correct the record, at least uh, this will be out there to let people know Charles Collins did not kill us. I hope so.
3: I I think he needs retribution. He deserves it. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: That's it for tonight, campers. As always, you can stop at our website at ohiomysteries.com to find photos, news clippings, and more on this episode. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Paula? Yes. Let me introduce you to
2: Corey Breath. As you noted earlier, Corey was born and raised in Chillicothe and currently lives in Tip City, where he creates original folk, Americana, and pop music. Anyway, Corey, he has opened for several national acts in his career, including the Ma- Magnetic Zeros and 21 Pilots, and he performed during a Mumford and Sons tour. I know. Oh, one of those guys. T- yeah,
1: I know the first, th- the last two. Yeah. it's one of the pilots at Mumford and, and Sons. And I know
2: Magnetic Zero. So we got, we got oh, this covered. Awesome. You can follow Corey on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Corey regularly performs all over the place. So just check out one of his social media sites to find out where he's going next. I see from his Facebook page he's got pl- plans to be at. Molar Brew Barn in Mercer, Ohio on March 29. So you can start there. Now, Corey is currently raising funds for his third studio album. On March 1, he's going to be launching a GoFundMe account for anyone who wants to help him make that happen. In the meantime, you can search for his music on Spotify or Apple Music.
1: You can find links to Corey Breath and all of our featured musical artists on the main page of our website. But for now... How about some more of that Smoke and Fire song we sampled at the very beginning of the podcast? Here it is, and we'll see you next week for another Ohio Mystery.
0: There's always a risk with me From the start you could see If you listen closely, you'll know what I mean Don't put a fire out with gasoline. Smoke and fire, we could lose it all. Smoke and fire, catch me before I fall. Smoke and fire, as long as you're around. Smoke and fire. We could burn to the ground We could burn to the ground It's out of our control now I could see this going down years you were my queen but you tried to put the fire out with gasoline smoke and fire we could lose it all smoke and fire catch me before i fall smoke and fire As long as you're around Smoke and fire We could burn to the ground We could burn to the ground We could burn to the ground When we started the fire We only made it worse Hard To not let us fail But I know in the end We're gonna prevail Smoke and fire We could lose it all Smoke and fire Catch me before I fall Smoke and fire as long as you're around, smoke and fire, we could burn to the ground. We could burn to the ground.